ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. My guest today is Bertie Blackman. I spoke with Bertie at the recent Byron Writers' Festival, which was held this year outside in the Bangalore showgrounds. The sky was blue, the sun was warm, and the northern rivers turned on its full charm. Bertie had friends and family in the audience, including her mum, who shouted out the occasional correction from the floor, which is not something that usually happens with guests, but which I think is fairly typical of the Blackman family. Bertie is a musician, a writer, and an artist. Her memoir, titled Bohemian Negligence, tells the story of Bertie's childhood. Her early life was marked by the magic of having the artist Charles Blackman as her father. Bertie's mum was his much younger second wife. Charles Blackman was one of the most celebrated Australian artists of the 20th century. He created dreamlike figurative paintings of Alice in Wonderland, of schoolgirls, of cats and flowers, and of sleeping women. And Bertie says her childhood was full of imagination and an intoxicating freedom. But there was darkness too, and the dangers that can show up when children are left to navigate the world too much on their own. Bertie, your dad, Charles Blackman, had six kids. Where are you in the lineup? I'm smack bang in the middle. <laughs> well, three. No, four. I'm number four. Yeah. <laughs> Almost the middle. <laughs> An accounting problem. Artist middle. Too. Yeah. yeah. And how old was he when you were born? Um, I think he was 52. Was a lovely middle-sized lanky man with uh, slightly balding, curly grey hair. Um, very impish creature. I think in the photos I've seen of Charles Blackman, there's often a beret. Was that something yeah. that he usually wore? Yeah, it wasn't for display only. He did wear them at home too. He had a little rack of them next to the door where he would select what colour. <laughs> How were things between him and your mum when you were little? Um, they were very much in love with each other, my mum and dad. There wasn't, yeah, all I remember really about their relationship is a lot of tenderness and love and respect between them, which is beautiful to be around. When did that change or um, how I, did that change? I think that changed, well, you know, my father was a notorious drinker, so I think that um, the drinking became more intense for my mum and then my mum decided to leave because it was too much for everybody. He was already famous, you know, a celebrated artist. What was it like being in his studio as a kid? It was very big <laughs> and I... I think about walking into it when I was a little bit bigger, although I'm still pretty small. It always felt so enormous to me. He always, there were big blank canvases or canvases full of colour and things kind of stacked up. There was always a lot of work going on and um, it was a beautiful place to sashay around as a child. What was it like watching him work? How did he go about making a painting? (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess... When I would watch him paint, I was quite little, so my memories of him painting are kind of kaleidoscopic, you know, so I remember the sound of the paintbrush really vividly, and I remember the sound of, like, glug, glug, glugging of probably what was turpentine. 
I remember snapping of charcoal and very much the smell and the scent and the wild colour of everything. And I remember him teaching me how to draw a straight line, which when I was a little bit older, I I think I was seven and I was in year two and one of the things you have to do is fill an exercise book full of like ruled lines and I was like, I don't need a ruler. My dad taught me how to write a, do a straight line so I'd put my pinky finger down and like go down really quickly, which I filled the whole book. I think a number of books like that and they were like, no, that is incorrect. And I, was, I was devastated. <laughs> when he was working, did he need silence or did he listen to music? He usually listened to the radio, listened to the ABC radio a lot, Radio National, a lot of, a lot of, (laughs) it's true though, a lot of classical music and the only more popular music I remember him listening to was like Roy Orbison and the Beatles and that's it. I asked other siblings about what else and that was mostly what they remember. And, you know, those beautiful figurative paintings of his, would he draw, would he make, sketch out the painting before he got to work with the paint itself? Yeah, usually me would draw with charcoal onto the canvas and then go straight on or rub it off. And I think other, me and my mum is sitting right there can talk more to the skill of the, um, you know, how to paint a picture. But I remember um, watching him do a painting and he would put um, masking tape across parts of the canvas and then paint over the masking tape and then rip it off and suddenly there'd be a really beautiful palm leaf sitting there and I was like wow that's you know using texture and geometry and things and different little tricks like that was always beautiful as a child to watch again I never watched him paint like that as an adult so I think my memories of it are kind of refracted that way. Was he a kind of painter that would get frustrated with work and and leave it aside or was it a a joyful place for him, the studio, usually? I don't remember him getting frustrated at his paintings. I remember him talking to his paintings and talking to how he worked and talking to the line of it, embodying, you know, the line of a cat's tail and this woman has smelling these beautiful sweet flowers and outside is the moon and the moon is talking to the cat and the woman is looking away because she's, you know, had a rough day. I know, things like that he would talk to, oh, I'm making it up, like talk to like whatever he felt in the moment. And I guess um, maybe artists can be split up that way in moments as you make it and it, it kind of, they create themselves as they become what they are. He liked to dress up your dad. What yeah. sort of things got him in a costume and what were some of the best? Well, I think most things would easily get him in a costume, but he used to dress up as the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I always enjoy very much. <laughs> Though usually it was women. It was a female Hunchback Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> he was mates with Barry Humphreys. Yeah, yeah, he was. So, I mean, I think they probably dressed up a whole lot more before I was born. <laughs> frocks, a lot of that going on. And um, there's a a chapter in my book where I talk about um, getting to pick his bra cup size before taking me to school. We had a huge long table near the door, which was full of grapefruits and oranges and lemons and probably apples and other things too. Um, But I would have to choose what size fruit would be his bra size. What did you go for? The big big ones. And you say before he dropped you off at school, so he'd dress in a dress and grapefruits down a bra and take you to primary school. Yeah, yeah, into the little yellow Holden Barina that we got into and 
I think if I did that, anything like that to my kids, the horror is, you know, I can't even imagine it. How did you feel? Were you embarrassed? No, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. (laughs) I was really into it. And no one seemed to, at the school that I went to, no one really made a big fuss either, so. (laughs) That's just Charles. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was just him. (laughs) You've got a lovely description in the memoir of cooking spaghetti together. How did he teach you to to cook spaghetti? What was the secret? Well, it's a very, I mean, I think it's a secret. Most people that like to cook spaghetti know where you put the spaghetti in hot, boiling, salty water. And the way that you test it is you throw it at the ceiling and see if it sticks. So we would do a lot of that. And I actually tried it recently the other day. It did not stick. It fell back on me. But he would do it a lot. And there were lots of strands of dried spaghetti on the ceiling of his kitchen. Where had he learned about European food? He told you some stories about working at the Mora's Cafe. Yeah. He, I mean, he loved food. He did live in Europe for a long time, again, before I was born. Um, and again, before I was born, he did work in the Mora's kitchens down in Melbourne, cooking and doing all sorts of things, shenanigans he would have been doing in that kitchen with those how, guys. How did he repurpose the wine down there? Oh, well, this is a story he told me, so I presume it is hopefully true, where he would, <laughs> they, they used to run out of wine quite a bit down there, so he would go around to everyone's wine dregs that were in the kitchen and pour them back in the bottles and uh, slap a new label on it and just draw a lovely picture and then go back and serve it out again. <laughs> I would say I tried to do that once and the wine was disgusting. I, I'm suspicious that I've had that wine <laughs> yeah. somewhere. You just hey, know. <laughs> so hanging out with him could be pretty fun. I mean, more fun than going to school. When you Definitely. wanted to get out of school, how would you convince him that you needed to stay at home? I mean, I, had, I think every child has their number of tricks. But he did do a great trick on me one day where he, would, uh, where he had like a... I don't think they have these anymore. Um, they probably don't work. But it was like a, a little dot, and then when you put it on your forehead, it would um, change colour to see if you were like a, had a temperature or not. And so he put a little dot on my head one day, and I was like, you know, Daddy, I'm very, very sick. And then I saw that he'd just taken one of the red dots from, like, the sold painting boxes and stuck it on my head so I could stay home with him. So it was very red, and I was very sick. <laughs> So sick. What could you do together when you were so deathly ill, Bertie? Well, you know, we did lots of things. He would we'd get to go and hang out in the studio with him or we would go to the etching press studio and he was doing a lot of etchings at the time. He loved to do etchings and so he taught me how to do that, which was wonderful. I did learn that when you um, draw something into an etching plate, it does come out backwards when it gets printed. So I did a few little etchings when I was in there with him and everything is reverse which I think I like, you know, such is life. After your parents separated, your dad introduced you to a new partner. What kind of impression did she make on you? Well, you know, I think she was a bit of a weird woman. She was a bit younger. She was a little bit, um, yeah, she was vivacious. She was a little bit witchy. She used to do this kind of weird... A little bit witchy. ...finger, you know, she'd come up to me and she'd be like, you need more vitamin C, you need... (laughs) These things, and I was, you know, young enough to be like, "That's fine. I'll, 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 I'll take those." It's a little bit Northern pills. Rivers, the way yeah, you're describing I, well, it. You know, <laughs> she might be here somewhere. You never know. You begin the memoir, Bertie, with uh, a different kind of memory than the ones that you're recounting now. It's an early memory of of lying next to your dad. Why is that such an important memory for you? It was the first time that. It was the first time that I felt 
mm, the difference in my father that I felt a little bit unsafe around him and a bit nervous. Um, he is uh, very drunk, so I just remember it's just such a... It's probably one of my most vivid all-time memories and it just stuck with me for many, many years because I was just quite confused, I guess, about how I felt. There's a, a kind of ambiguity that I guess is how a child feels when they're around an adult they know and love and trust but can sense that that adult is out of control in a way, that, that yeah. mixed feeling. Yeah, and I, I, I must have for the first time sort of sensed that he maybe that's what drunk was because I could feel that it wasn't quite him and I guess that's what made me nervous. Do you always uh, remember alcohol being a part of his life when you were, were around? No, not really. Definitely in the um, later years. Not when he was with my mother so much um, at all, but definitely when he remarried again. I think his drinking just got worse and worse. You describe a, a visit like a kind of a, a family reunion um, where you and your younger brother flew up to join your dad and, and his new wife and other siblings in Cairns. And things seemed like they got a little bit out of hand, that that line between celebration and something darker was starting to get crossed? Yeah. I mean, I would... I mean, there were many long lunches that we would have as families and everyone would drink lots of wine and, you know, how those things go, everyone gets louder and louder. But, you know, I would walk into the hotel room and he would, you know, be sculling the little bottles of alcohol. And I as a child, I was still... It, it, you know, it doesn't land on you. You just think that that's normal. And, you know, then he would just kind of go to sleep on the floor. There is often then, or it seemed to be in your experience, you can get exposed to a kind of adult sexuality when alcohol is in play in a way that I think sober parents wouldn't do. Was that yeah. something that was disturbing at the time or more when you look back, you think that was, that was a weird weird things to see, weird things to be around. And I think it was definitely not at the time. It was very normalised in terms of it was just kind of going on. So for me, again, just being a young child, I just didn't think there was anything wrong with that until I then told my mother one day what I'd seen. And then, you know, it was quite alarming to me, her reaction. And I, as a, I also thought that I'd then done something wrong. And then you kind of go into this kind of the talk in your head probably starts to change as a child where you then was the moment where I started to look at things differently and noticed things and, you know, after certain moments like that, um, people tried to stop to have drinking. So when I would go and see him, he would have little stashes of wine and I remember I'd, like, dobbed him in one day and Mum came and picked me up and he was so, and he got really angry at me and it was one of the first times he'd, I could just, he was really pissed off and I was just mortified that I'd, you know, broken his trust, I guess, but also I knew that I'd done the right thing. It really sticks out for me, that one. How did things compare at your mum's place? Was it a, a calmer kind of house? Yeah, it was much calmer. It's a completely different space, you know. Um, mum's a painter too, so in her house, in our house, it was a really safe house, you know. It was full of colour. There were lots of people coming around all the time and... You know, at Dad's house, it, when he married his third wife, it became a lot kind of 
it was ridiculous and great at times, but there was a, a lot more sadness in the house. I would start to feel that way. But, you know, when things were like that, I wasn't at my dad's house all the time. So I was mostly with mum. You did have a really terrifying experience at, at your mum's place one night when someone broke in. What did you wake to? What happened? Well, we lived in the sort of... In, and Paddington at the time was in the 80s, which is very... I think it's lots of... Um, I don't know, whatever drug was going on at that time before ice. Heroin. Heroin, yeah. And we had, another, I think, eight robberies in two years, which was a lot in... The previous week, someone had been kind of trying to take our TV in the house and mum came downstairs and shooed them away, as much as you'd shoo a drug addict out of the house. Um, And then the next week, they came back and they crowbarred in our front door, tied up my mum, ripped out uh, the phone cords from the walls and, and, you know, um, screamed at her a lot. And I was a seven, six or seven at the time. So I was sitting up in bed and my brother was asleep. And he disguised himself by putting my school uniform over his head, which was a the robber, weird thing the robber to did see. That. Yeah, yeah, when he came into the room. But look, luckily nobody was hurt. But it was a very, uh, it's a, again, a very sonic memory for me, like a lot of texture and like the threat of violence. We're very lucky that nothing bad happened to anybody. Um, How did you get help? How did you free your mum if she was tied up? That's terrifying. Well, I had to, I tried to untie her, but I was very small. Um, so I had to scream out the window for help a number of times while this man had taken our car. I could hear him like revving it up the road. So I um, called for help and I think someone three doors down came and knocked on the door and I went back and asked mum, you know, should I open the door? Hoping that it wasn't and, you know, feeling very terrified walking through our house that had our stuff, you know, thrown all over it and opening the door, not really knowing, you know, who would be there on the other side. Mm. Yeah, that's just, I don't recommend that experience yeah. for anybody. You also spent time with your mum's mum, Jane. Where did she live and what was her house like? Uh, she lived in Wallara, which was just up the road, which was around the corner from where my dad lived with his first wife and children. Um, So they all lived rather close to each other, which I think is interesting. She lived in this beautiful house which had a white picket fence and was very tall and had, I think, what maybe wasn't at the time, but now is the tallest palm tree on the street, so you can really see it from a distance, and it was number 99. What did she look like? What did she like to wear? She was very tiny and she had a little bob. She had a brown bob. She would only wear black, many, many, many shades of black. And later in life, she started to turn into some, like, other earth tones, but mostly it was trying to find the perfect black. We went into so many shops trying to find the blackest black, and she's like, not darling, that's not the right black. You wash that once and it washes out and it becomes not as black. So she ended up in, like, a few, like, polyester numbers where I think, like, in some of the cheaper shops sell better black, black, black that does not fade. <laughs> what sort of stories did she tell you about her life? I mean, she had an amazing life. She, you know, she was a single mum with four four children with a number of jobs at the same time, I would say. And she, at the time, most women would were told to marry or, you know, become a secretary. And my grandmother did, did not do either of those things. She, well, she went over to Paris. She went to Europe 
you know, as a, as a really young woman. And I do believe actually she did have a few jobs as a secretary over there, but for, you know, very interesting people. And she met my grandfather in Budapest and, you know, had a... Back dad, sorry, mum, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a new experience being fact-checked while yeah, there is yeah, access. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> Someone take Bertie's mother careful. out of the tent so Bertie can say whatever she uh, needs to. Was... <laughs> it starts with a B. It starts with a B. So she'd had a kind of adventurous, She had an incredibly adventurous life. life. She was like, darling, all I needed in this tiny little bedsit was I used to wash myself in the sink and I had a little gas stove and I cooked everything on that and that's all you ever need. Um, and then she ended up in this wonderful rambling house in Woolara that was full of her beautiful treasures. She was a, I think hoarder is too strong a word, but she had an amazing amount of incredible treasures, baskets, and she'd have newspapers upstairs. But, you know, just her life was all around her house and really extraordinary. She was obsessed with percussion, which is where I first discovered music in that way. She had an amazing collection of Japanese gongs. She'd give me chopsticks and I'd go into the garden and play them. I remember being very little doing that and I just loved it. She loved it too. She loved watching me do that. One of the things you write about, Bertie, is the sexual abuse that you suffered uh, from a neighbour of your aunt's and you told your mum about that, which is so brave. What happened then? Well... I guess I was sort of somewhat of a whistleblower with this person because he was a serial pedophile. Yeah, there were a number of of young children that he'd been doing that to. So, you know, my memories of, like, what exactly happened are a little bit blurry because, again, I was um, very young. But I think mum asked me the question, like, has anybody ever touched you? And I just said yes because they had. That's a question that I, you know, think about, I look at my own child now and I'm just like, bloody hell, you know, you just can't imagine it, the answer being yes. So, you know, my, my memories of it are kind of fuzzy and confused because, again, I go into a space of seeing everyone that's very stressed and, you know, feeling like it's all my fault, which is, I think, very common for children and it happens to them. You don't want anyone else to, you know, be in a stressful situation or... Usually you've been groomed to place the blame on yourself that you're asking for it and it's all on you. And, you know, if anything gets out that everyone will turn on you, which is a terrible thing to tell a child. It's a very, very common story to hear that. As you say, you were a kind of a whistleblower. Did this abuser go to jail? Um, no, he didn't. He... It was a number of years before he ended up being prosecuted and, again, these memories are blurry. But by the time everyone started to come forward, he um, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. So he was never prosecuted, but he would have been. Did you ever consider not writing about that part of your story in the book or what was it like to include that, to, to go to it in a narrative way that you did in the memoir? It was very difficult to write, I've got to say, and I didn't know how I would write something like that because I've read some books where there's pedophilia involved and some descriptions of it and, you know, what the children went through and I find those, obviously I find those things very difficult to read because it brings up my own experiences of all of it. So I have to say that I, I can barely, I could barely reread them now and when I had to 
narrate them for the audiobook, it was incredibly difficult to... It's one thing to kind of write it down with your eyes shut and relive it and you feel, you know, physically ill and it, it, it's, it's not nice, but, you know, I hoped that maybe by writing it down it would, um, you know, it's a type of therapy. It's, it's good to get things out of your body. And then saying it out loud is a whole other thing. It's like being asked the question, has anyone done this to you? Yes, it makes it very real. And then saying the words out loud make them very real in a different kind of way. So it's very confronting. Yeah. You describe how your mum tried to take action to help you and you were believed. And yet you were left alone with this man who of no one knew what was going to happen, but is that part of the negligence of this title, that you were put in a situation that had the potential to be dangerous? No, I, the, the negligence word comes with the story, with, you know, with my relationship with my father. I think that anyone, you know, this person was a family friend, he'd been a family friend in our family for a very long time, you know, and I think if anyone suspected anything like that, no one would be doing anything like that. You know, my aunt lived next door. He seemed like a perfectly nice human being. He was like our family accountant, you know, like anything like this, it's usually very close family friends that no one, no one suspects. I kind of speak about negligence. In a way, like, you know, it was the relationship that I had with my father in many of the beautiful ways this open way of being and how we kind of grow up in these different ways and I know negligence seems like a really harsh word but Mm -hmm. I don't think that my childhood was negligent at all but I think there were sort of elements of that between parts of relationships within my childhood that probably speak to what that is. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. I was struck by the number of times that you were in situations without an adult, with some dodgy older kids, <laughs> and adults are off having a good time, yeah. and the kids are kind of in their own society, Yeah. and how, reading that as an adult, how precarious that is. I guess, like, a lot of people that we hung out with at the time, that's how everyone was really living, and a lot of that actually happened up here. So, you know, the kids just hanging out on mass, and then adults are, like, hanging out in the house, and, like, we go off and build, like, teepees in the forest and, like, catch yabbies, and, like, for us, we just spent a lot of time together. Like, it wasn't, like, one child kind of out outside, or there were, like, a mass of us of all, like, different ranges of ages and things, and... We had just the best time. But, you know, like then sort of weird things can happen in those situations and I think luckily nothing too kind of strange happened. There was, you know, a horse riding camp that I went to where there was like a weirdo old kid that was, uh, you know, some things are happening with the kind of younger girls. But as far as like us off in the forest as like little impy kids catching gabbies, it was pretty great. And also, you know, the adults all together having 
an adult time and the kids are you know, lighting fires, as they should be. <laughs> Did you seek out kids from different sorts of homes for friends? Like, did you want kids who had the really straighty 180 solid family or were you gravitating towards kids who were in situations more like yours? Um, I think that's... Like, lots of my old friends are, like, their parents are friends with my mum, so we all naturally hung out together a lot. Some kids I knew, some kind of normalish kids at school, and I would go to their house and be like, they're eating frozen pie for dinner, yum. <laughs> and, you know, I'd, I'd get for their, like, weird food that I'd never eaten. But, like, in the end, kind of wasn't really for me and probably, yeah, I was more actually in- interested in their processed food than anything else. <laughs> our house has been so lucky. My mum was a really amazing cook. My dad is an amazing cook. There's fresh fruits and vegetables. I was like, what is this interesting smell? <laughs> Tomato sauce from a a tube. As you're making clear, you really want to show the light as well as the dark that came with the freedom that your parents encouraged or insisted that you take. Tell me about your time in a rodeo in the Northern Territory. I got to go on a fantastic trip up into Catherine with a dear old um, family friend of ours who had a, a daughter of the same age and I was there for three weeks it was my first time going up north and into the bush and seeing the earth be a different colour I'd ever seen as sand, pretty much. So I was like a little young white kid entering into a space where I, you know, into a community and things like that. It was amazing, like just so beautiful and incredible. And then, you know, also I'm a city kid and I still am. So confronted with like horses and manure and like work. <laughs> it was fun though, like we got to go, I got to go on a wild goat and to the, got sort of slapped into the middle of the stadium and like tied onto a wild goat. Let's just wait, because usually rodeos are involving horses. What do you mean wild goat? Well, they had like a kids section <laughs> where, you know, the adults are like off elsewhere and the kids are in a big strapped mass group to together, strapped to goats, <laughs> getting slapped out into an auditorium where they're like, go, go, go for it. Who uh, came off best in that contest, you or the goat? Oh, the goat. I got whipped off really quickly. There's a great, uh, there is a photograph of me just clung on. There's actually a, another photo I've seen that doesn't have the goat of you from that trip. It's just a really great photo of a kid. Can you describe your expression or the, there's a real presence that you have. Yeah, it's actually one of my favourite photos, well, of myself as a child. I think I'm 10 or 11, I think, and I'm sitting... And I think I'm feeling pretty cool, I do. So at the time, I think I felt pretty cool, but I'm sitting out the back of the rodeo against, like, a horse trailer, sort of leaning there wearing, like, a trucker cap and, like, no T-shirt and jeans and no shoes and just kind of looking away, just feeling very free and still feeling young, too. Like, I don't remember that kind of which sort of comes later on when you're becoming where your hormones kick in you're like oh, I feel suddenly really different from everyone else so I was just sitting there very comfortable in my own skin it's probably the look that you're getting I look at that I'm like I want to be that again it's good <laughs> it's great you, you mentioned the percussion at your grandmother's house and music is this part of you from such an early age What was the experience that you had in the car with your mum and a friend driving down to the coast and and they were playing Nick Cave on the stereo? What what was happening inside as you were hearing that music? It was the first time that 
I mean, I grew up with a lot of loud music around. Mum loved to play loud pop music, which is just so good. But it was the first time that, you know, you're really driving somewhere and you're watching the road and, you know, curling down this highway and I could see the water in the distance and it was Come Sail Your Ships by Nick Cave. And it was the first moment where music really sunk into my bones in a very particular way where it, it really shook me and got into me and I was like, I resonate so deeply with where I felt he was coming from and for whatever was going on in my life at the time, I was like, I want to do things like what he does. He's like conjuring this amazing resonance and nuance of life that I feel like I touch upon sometimes and I just felt very compelled to want to do that too. What was your first experience of singing into a mic before an audience? What did I say in the book? School. School, okay. (laughs) But you can say whatever you want. That's right, unless your mother wants to intervene. But from my point of view, your memory is yours. (laughs) No, it's true. I... My first main instrument was drums. I played drums for a number of years. And I used to play drums in the garage, which is pretty typical of any drummer. Um, And I remember mum came in one day and I had headphones and I was playing the drums and I was singing. And I started to feel like singing a little bit. And I remember she opened my eyes and she was just looking at me. I can't remember what she said, but she was like, I was like, I've been watched. Um, Okay, but maybe I want to do this a little bit more. And I was not sure how I felt about that, but we had a school. Was she surprised by your talent, do you think? I think she was was astounded by my talent. She must have just been like, (laughs) Beyonce, bring it. (laughs) Uh, I hope she was. Melting? Just, no, she's horrified. Don't sing. Yeah, no, because as Mia says, I was a very quiet child apart from me bashing the drums really loud in the garage. And then we had a school performance and there was like an audition to sing. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try this out. And I never told anyone, which is pretty typical of me. I just go off and do things. So I went off and auditioned and then I got in. Were you nervous? I was, but like, it was just this thing that happens like when I sing things just kind of fall away and it feels very powerful to me like I feel like you know when you sing obviously your chest resonates because there's air in there moving around but it just I feel very connected in myself when I do when I'm not hitting a wrong note but it felt like that when I auditioned and then I performed it and it was the first time I think mum had ever, no one knew that I was doing this and I think I just announced to everyone that I was doing it and then everyone was there and there was sort of five or six hundred people in this audience and then I sung The Long and Winding Road by the Beatles with a band and that was really bloody great. Come in with a bang, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your dad wasn't there to watch you sing that night though. What no. was going on with him? He, I think by that point... He suffered a number of strokes, which kind of kicked forward Korsakoff syndrome, which is like an alcohol-induced dementia. So singing became a way for me, I guess, to express, you know, loss and longing, kind of loneliness in a confused space in that regard. But no, he didn't, didn't hear me sing that. And so the long and winding road was the eventual end of his and the beginning of my long and winding road of life. Once he descended into that alcohol-induced dementia, who was looking after him? 
his wife was no longer with him, his third wife, and so he he had close friends that would come and help and that they eventually became his carers. He had dementia for 20 years before he passed away, so it was a long... And, you know, at the beginning he had these strokes, so it was more like a recovery for having strokes and he had another exhibition of really big charcoal drawings and he'd been trying to kind of... Not trying, but, like, everyone was encouraging to paint and work because it's what he loved to do most in this world. But, you know, you could see the dementia really kick in and he became very frustrated and, you know, as it is with that disease, you become a bit like a broken record and so in his drawing, you know, everything started to change and he drew and drew and drew but started to repeat the same drawings over and over again and it was like a slow unwinding in a certain type of way. What kind of relationship could you, as his daughter, have with him as that dementia took hold? I mean, it was a very refracted one. It was became very, I guess, one-sided in many ways because I couldn't... I would try and ask him questions and I think he would become very frustrated that he couldn't answer them, so he would just sort of say something else back usually. He would. He got really obsessed with strange things. Well, like great things like the Titanic. He was obsessed with that for a number of years, which was great. He was obsessed with Julia Gillard, which was also really great. <laughs> What you mean obsessed wanting to talk about or wanting to Yeah, find like out just about. her name and then it would just be like a few sentences about her or very famously he ended up in hospital again with pneumonia and they gave him like 17 blood transfusions or whatever to kind of get him back on track and then he recited the entire um, script from Young Frankenstein from beginning <laughs> to end. <laughs> you know, so that we're all like, he's back. You know? <laughs> so I knew things were good when he could recite that film. <laughs> was he, you know, you described the, the frustration he had with his primary language, which was art, drawing. Was he still drawing in the, as he was in his 70s, 80s? Yeah, definitely. He was drawing up until the very, you know, the, the last sort of days before he died, before he couldn't sort of hold a pen anymore. I... Um, was lucky enough he was very he was around the corner from me in in a facility and I would go there most days and you know sit there and he would draw and he would draw these beautiful drawings where he would do the outline of usually a schoolgirl and a cat and then he would color in the whole page in black biro and they were all in black biro so they're in these beautiful faded images that also look like they're behind static which I think is really interesting and beautiful and I think that they are gorgeous snapshots into and also really sad like hard to look at but that I feel like that's what he was seeing Mm. and I think it's really interesting you know being able to be you know apart from him being my dad and the complexity of our relationship being able to be next to like such an extraordinary artist and watching him recede Mm. and seeing what that looked like to him. It's such a painful heartbreaking condition in that you're with someone physically but the way that you're with them is so different. Were you able to talk about any of the stuff that you write about in this book? Could you have any of those conversations with him or did you try to have them just one way? No, I didn't. I, I think I tried to... I was, too, I was actually scared about what he might say, I think, um, because I hadn't been able to get... I mean, I have this tattoo on my arm which says, on a hill there was you and me, Charles, which he wrote on my arm about 10 years before he died with a texter. And I was like, that's great, because he hadn't said anything to me 
for a really long time. It was like this beautiful moment. I was like, he he always remembered who I was, but I it was a really beautiful, tender moment where I was just always like searching for him to say like, I love you, I miss you, or happy birthday, or whatever you wish for when you're a kid. And he wrote that on my arm. So, you know, I have that moment and that's very beautiful and precious to me. And then the moment when the person that you've lost but not lost actually does pass away can be such a mix of feelings too. What was it like for you? I mean, it was really beautiful. We were lucky because I have a big family and my other siblings were not around. And so my mum and my brother came and we were all in the room together when he passed away, which was we were all sleeping next to him on the floor. And, yeah, it was, it was very... And we'd all been awake all night for a number of days... And it was quite a privilege to be next to someone as they pass away. I mean, anyone, but your your parent and watching what the body does when it slowly goes as well. And, you know, he stopped eating and then I uh, accidentally, he was just looking at me, I was eating some chocolate. So I was like, fine, I'm just going to give him this lint ball, this lint chocolate ball. And I like got stuck, got stuck, I remember he got stuck in his throat and I was like, oh my God, I've murdered him. It's like Charles Blackman dies by death of lint chocolate ball. But you know, he got it down. I was like, oh my God, good, thank God. I really messed that up. But we sat around and we drank wine around him and like his old, some of his old friends came around and it was really special for my brother and my mum and I to be in a room with him alone, which we'd never been before together since I was a child because because of the dementia and I think, you know, my dad loved my mum and their breakup was very difficult for him, for, for both of them, you know, really difficult. So it was very healing to be with him. But it was the moment we all fell asleep for about five minutes that, you know, he passed away and we woke up and he was gone. You mentioned that it would have been his 95th birthday. Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. How do you mark that anniversary? Well, usually I mark it with having steak with Bernays sauce, which was one of his favourite meals. But instead I marked it with a hot dog watching Matilda's football. <laughs> I think he would be happy. I yeah, think, I think you know, he would have been into that. Anyone would be happy. Yeah, yeah, his... a couple of snags, you know. <laughs> You're a parent now, Bertie. How do you talk about your dad to your son? Well, I wrote a children's book called Micah the Star Sailor, which was about a little... It's about a little girl, you know, who misses her father who spends a lot of time in space and he's an astronaut. So I speak... I tell Rumi that, you know, he is an astronaut in space and that's where he is. And he's now taken to telling me that he sees him all the time, which can make me a little bit like, oh, my God. He's there. <laughs> and he's like, he's winking at me. I can see Charlie. And it's just really beautiful. It's very confronting sometimes because I just, I'm sure he probably can see him. You know, I know that he is there. And it's a really beautiful kind of circular, you know, life moving forwards and, you know, memories being there's living things. You know, we pass our, you know, we have our memories of things that we experience in our life, but then the stories that we tell our children and then how they, now then his memory of like me telling him that as he gets older and about his grandfather and the way that I talk to my son, I like to invoke the way that 
you know, my dad talked to me and my mum talks to me in a, in a particular way of describing the world. I was very lucky to have such poetic parents. Life was domestic, but life is, has to be incredibly beautiful or it's not worth living. So I think that sense of being has been really instilled in me and I will instill that in my boy too. Do you see flashes of your dad in him? I do. I see when he's like making like a weird grunt or a shriek sound. <laughs> or the way that he chews his food with his mouth open. <laughs> I know, but sometimes I see him kind of looking away at something and it's a real blackman look, this kind of like, I know I have it. I get told it all the time, it's this particular look. You're just like your father. I'm like, I guess that's good. <laughs> so there are things that you want to pass on about the way that you were raised, that poetic sensibility, the freedom... What do you want to do differently? I mean, much of those things I think are so important. I would like to do the same. I feel frustrated that I don't have, like, a lovely big bohemian house to raise my son in, and the kind of wild notes that I had, because as much as it was nuanced in some ways, I think that kind of live living is really, really beautiful and wild. And so I would like to be able to give that to him, but I just have to find different ways to do it, not in my tiny little flat in Potts Point. We go to the park. This is where the real estate reality... <laughs> that is, it's really hit hits. me. I was like, damn, <laughs> I didn't get my big house. You dedicate the book to your mum, Genevieve. What was it like having her read your version of your early life? I mean, it, I spoke to mum a little bit. Like, she knew I was writing the book, but I, I had a number of conversations with her while writing it that I didn't want to talk to her to fact-check or, like, talk about what I was writing too much because I didn't want it to colour, yes, my memories and my experiences of things. So I think we had a number of conversations about that which made me feel less nervous because I was, like, the main thing that I wanted, especially mum, like, is most important for me, for her to feel okay reading this... Like, I wanted her to feel okay reading this book because... She's my mum, you know. For her not to tell me that that didn't happen, and I think especially as a survivor of sexual abuse, when someone says, do you know that didn't happen or it didn't happen that way, not that she would say that about what happened in that regard, but it's a very triggering kind of sentence to say to someone who's constantly kind of relegating in a sometimes in a space of guilt and shame. So... She did not do that. I think it would have been very challenging for her to read, but it's been a beautiful and healing, I hope, book for our family in some ways and a very healing thing for me to do, I think. There's not a lot of anger in the book. Is that something that uh, you had to work? Is that a place you had to work to get to or is that just you? Uh, I think that's just me. I maybe turn anger into other things, but... I think you have to get it to... Like, I just knew I needed to get into a space of forgiveness in many ways or I, you live your life in that space and I just never wanted to do that. And also think that, yeah, I'm not generally, like, an angry person that way. I don't think blame is useful ever. doesn't matter what someone's... You know, I just think you just got to move on and, and turn... And I, I, I'm lucky because I can turn what might be feelings of anger or 
you know, darker things like that into beautiful things. So I'm lucky In terms of art, you mean? Yeah, yeah, into art or writing and singing and I have channels to kind of put those those feelings into spaces and I think, you know, it's a great privilege to be able to do that as well. We're all made through our childhood and through what we make of our childhood. Where do you draw the lines between the person you are today and that upbringing that you had? I think it's definitely made me who I am. I think, I think we're born a certain way with that's not in anyone's kind of control. You know, you kind of have your little soul and you're put on this earth, but it's a bit like, you know, if you kind of have a, a lump of sticky tape and you kind of just keep rolling it down a hill, all the stuff will get stuck to it and you just, that shape and you can't shake it off. It's just like who you are, unless the tape's crap. <laughs> um, you know, we are who we are and I think that we're definitely made up of all of those beautiful granules of experience and memory and I think our stories are extraordinary and everyone's story is beautiful and important. It's been really fascinating to hear the sticky tape that you are and that you've collected Thank along you. the way. Thank you, <laughs> Bertie. Please yeah. join me in thanking Bertie Blackman. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.